If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, then maybe you'd enjoy membership with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. As a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, you'll have access to the RCPE education portal and access to the evening medical updates and options to view the symposia in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, then please go on to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website for more information. Thank you. Hello everyone and welcome back to Clinical Conversations. I'm Dr Hasnara Shah, a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Trainees and Members Committee and I'm also an IMT3 from the North East. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Philip Crosby, an honorary consultant in respiratory medicine at the University Hospital of Manchester and senior lecturer in cancer sciences. His research and clinical focus is the early detection of lung cancer and he led the initial lung health check pilot in Manchester, which we'll be touching upon in our podcast. Today, we'll be talking really about his pilot and then the national lung cancer screening, the future of lung cancer screening and smoking cessation. This podcast nicely complements our September podcast about lung cancer and the acute medical take. So firstly, I'd just like to say welcome, Dr. Crosby. Hi there, and thank you for inviting me to do a podcast. Thanks so much for giving up your time. So really, just to explain why we've chosen this topic today, is that we just really wanted to raise a bit of awareness, as it's a fairly new initiative that I feel a lot of trainees might not be aware of, unlike, say, breast or cervical screening. As we're all probably aware, lung cancer is responsible nearly one in five cancer deaths worldwide and is a very common condition that we will all encounter during our training and I think there's still quite a lot of room for sort of both prevention diagnosis and treatment so I thought it was really important to just shed some light upon this. So before we launch into all of that I just wondered uh, Dr Crosby if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself, how you got to getting into lung health checks and a bit about just your career pathway up to now. Yeah, of course, no problem. So I'm currently a senior lecturer at the University of Manchester, and I split my time. Half of my time is academic, and half of my time is clinical. And I've been at consultant level since about 2012, so a few years now. My clinical focus is on patients with lung cancer. So we run lung cancer diagnostic services, fast track clinics, and undertake interventional bronchoscopy. From a, a research point of view, my main focus actually of the last few years has been lung cancer screening. And since we did our pilot in 2016, that's been the, the focus of what we've done. Mainly how to implement screening, what's the best way in which screening would work, especially for those people who are most in need. Going backwards, I was a trainee in general internal medicine and respiratory over a five-year period based in the northwest of England and, and really came into academic life later on. I'd spent many years as a medical SHO and uh, registrar, uh, and it was only later on in my training that I really became interested in academic research. And it was triggered by seeing people, patients with lung cancer coming in to the service. And on that first day, the, where they walked into clinic, or if they presented as an emergency, which is quite common for patients with lung cancer, so seeing people on the acute take, they would have advanced incurable disease on day one. And really the challenge to myself was, 
can we do anything about this? Is there a way in which we can improve the outcomes for patients with lung cancer, which is, as you say, incredibly common? But the the other striking finding of lung cancer is also its very high mortality level. So the question really in my head was, how can we change this? What can we do to try and improve outcomes for patients? And that's been the challenge that we've been trying to address over the last few years through research, but also through innovations in clinical services as well. Brilliant. And I totally agree with that. I think there is a huge mortality and there's definitely room for us to improve the care we provide. So I guess when you started with your pilot, what was your number one sort of goal or aim to sort of achieve through doing the pilot? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing you have to do when you're wanting to do an intervention is make sure that you've got a robust evidence base. And for lung cancer screening, that came through in about 2011 with the National Lung Screening Trial. And this was a very large American study, randomised patients into either annual low-dose CT or chest X-ray. And in 2011, published that those who had the low-dose CT had a 20% reduction in lung cancer mortality. So that gets around all the sort of biases that you can get with screening research. It demonstrates highly effective intervention that can save lives. So once we had that information, the question then, I suppose, from a sort of clinical and, and academic point of view is then, okay, fine, that's a big research study. How do you actually then take that and implement it and deliver a service where it's accessible to those who are most in need. And a striking thing with lung cancer is the difference or the the fact that it doesn't impact society evenly. There's a massively higher impact in more deprived communities. And, you know, it's a striking gradient as you go from more affluent areas to more deprived areas. So the key is really how do you make sure that the service that you want to give is accessible to those most in need? And that was the question. So in 2015, I think it was, Macmillan Cancer Support came to Manchester and really asked that question. There was a number of people sat around a table, challenged really to say, what would you do to try and improve outcomes for patients in Manchester? All areas across the country are impacted by lung cancer. Manchester is unfortunately one of the areas with the highest impact in the country. So it's specifically important for our local communities. And the conversation we had went from various things. Should we be doing something in primary care? You know, various options were discussed. But the the key from my perspective was that we had obviously this evidence that screening with low dose CT, we now had evidence that that works. So that's what we should be doing. That's the intervention. But how do you do it? And then through discussions and involving patients and patient advocates and a wide number of people, the Manchester sort of Lung Health Check took shape, trying to address different barriers or different issues related that we thought would be helpful. So for instance, we called it a lung health check to try and reduce the emphasis on lung cancer. And because, you know, lung cancer is associated with high mortality, it creates anxiety and potentially barriers to people wanting to take part. We wanted it also to be convenient. And so in our service, we decided to develop a community service. So we would take the mobile scanner, we would take our mobile unit out into, say, supermarket car parks where it would be more convenient. We, we weren't waiting for people to come to us. We were taking our service to them and having it as a one-stop shop. So post an invite and you ask someone, you know, if you've ever smoked, come to a lung health check. And it's one appointment. They come, they have the health check. And if they are high risk, and that's assessed through a risk calculator, then they have an immediate low-dose CT scan if that's what they wish. So convenience. 
This is all, of course, backed up. So you have the screening service in the community. It's run by specialist nurses. It's holistic. It's not just about lung cancer as well, I suppose, is another important point to make. We, in addition to assessing lung cancer risk and then just therefore determining who is eligible for screening or not, we're also assessing respiratory symptoms. We're assessing spirometry to see if there's undiagnosed COPD. In Manchester, we also ask about cardiovascular risk. And it's really trying to address the different morbidities associated with smoking. So benign smoking-related respiratory disease, cardiovascular disease, and lung cancer in one consultation. From that, you obviously have your service in the community, and then that information, the scanning, the data comes then back into a specialist thoracic centre where the reporting and interpretation and communication of results is, is performed. Fab. So it sounds like you set up quite a lot of sort of community-based, not sort of lung screening, but more lung health checks that we're trying to look at the patient as a whole. You've talked a little bit about the barriers originally setting it up that you try to overcome. Were there any sort of challenges you had once you had set up the service or along the way that you hadn't sort of foreseen? Yes, <laughs> multiple. I mean, you wouldn't believe what you, when you start doing mobile CT scanning in supermarket car park, you know, the job description changes somewhat. You, you then have to turn into a plumber. The lorry can't fit through a, a supermarket car park or the wires that you have connecting the CT scanner to the generator gets stolen. There, there are things that happen when you were doing your training, you didn't think you'd be <laughs> trying to solve. Uh, so yeah, there were an enormous number of logistical hurdles to overcome. And, you know, as you do these, you learn what works best and what doesn't work best. So that yes, you know, the Wi-Fi, for instance, connecting the truck to the hospital, there's loads of different practical issues. The question, I suppose, is yes, okay, it's challenging, but is it worth it? And I think from our experience that actually, yes, trying to overcome all that is worth it. Yes, it's difficult. Difficult, but it's worth it is the bottom line in, in our experience. And we spoke about how we were sort of trying to target more patients in need in the more deprived areas of Manchester. How did you sort of go about selecting who exactly did come in or get an invite? Like you mentioned, they were getting an invite in the post to come along to supermarkets. How did you select which patients and who did you decide to sort of look at initially? When you first start a new service, you're not doing it at scale as such. You're doing a pilot. And therefore, you know, for, for us, we wanted to assess three locations. We wanted to assess the north, centre and south of Manchester. So that was the first decision. So there were three locations chosen. And then we discussed with local primary care practices that would be interested in, in taking part. And therefore, we had about 14 GP practices taking part in our pilot. I think it was roughly five in each area. And then from that, you then look at the evidence to say who benefits from screening. And the evidence from trials is that it's 55 to 74-year-olds, possibly higher ages as well. And our, our approach was simple in terms of the invitational approach was simply to send a letter to everybody because we weren't certain how we would identify ever smokers, whether the smoking record in primary care is accurate enough to simply send to people recorded as a smoker in primary care. So anyway, we sent a letter to everyone in that age range, in the practices taking part. And it was very straightforward. It was just, or well, if you would like a lung health check, please just phone this number and book an appointment. And then people either did or didn't, you know, it was up to them. And when they phoned, they had an appointment. And then for their appointment, they then turned up at the truck in the community. So it was relatively simple from that point of view. We simply followed the evidence and sent out the invite. The slightly complicated issue about lung cancer screening is it's not all comers. So you have to go through a process where you assess risk 
for instance, in the national protocol, we now have a national protocol, the assessment of risk is required prior to determining whether someone is eligible for screening. And there's there's a couple of risk models that we use. And in essence, there are a few questions asking about age and smoking, and whether you've got COPD and, and various other variables. And then that comes out with a score. And if you're over that score, then you're eligible. If you're under that score, you're not. And so that's part of the process. So that's part of the lung health check. So I guess the question would be, did you find what you were expecting to with the pilot or were there any unexpected findings? We've mentioned how obviously it was evidence-based and it had been looked at previously to show that it's shown to reduce mortality. Did that sort of fit with what you found with the pilot? Yeah, so I mean, you don't know, do you, when you do something for the first time, whether you're going to have empty CT scanners and nobody turning up, nobody's interested or whatever. I mean, beyond it, we did have a lot of sort of feedback saying you're wasting your time, not, not necessarily wasting your time, but people in these areas, they don't want to have health interventions, they're not interested in their health. You know, there, there were comments like that made, but actually what we found was the opposite. The invitations went out, demand was really high, we didn't have enough people on the phones to answer all the inquiries. Appointments were booked up immediately. So that was a pleasant surprise. That was great to see. The other thing we saw after the scans were done is that we, I suppose because we went into areas of high lung cancer incidence and in more deprived areas, we saw a lot of lung cancer. So the sort of summary statistic was one in 23 people who attended screening in our pilot was diagnosed with lung cancer, and about 80% of which were early stage. So we had a very high rate of lung cancer detection and a very high rate of early stage disease detection. And that really compares, if we look more broadly across Manchester at the same time, in places that weren't having lung cancer screening, the majority of patients have stage three, stage four disease. So screening was able to massively shift, you know, the lung cancers from predominantly a terminal palliative disease into one where people were having curative surgery. So it totally changed the dial. The amount of lung cancer was a surprise. If you look at screening trials, you're generally expecting about 1% of people to have lung cancer each round or so. So we were seeing far greater than that. I think that is one difference between the published literature and then what you actually see in the real world is that there is a bias in research where you tend to get what's called a healthy volunteer effect. And in lung cancer, that means that you get lower risk people going through research. But then when you're doing it in practice, actually, we're detecting far more. So yes, so we were surprised at the number of lung cancers we found. We were really happy that we were finding lung cancer early. That was the whole point, setting the service up. But there were many different things. There was many things that we also saw. As we discussed earlier, the lung health check was a more holistic approach. We didn't just want to focus on lung cancer. We want to look at other smoking-related comorbidities. So one example, we had, I think it was about one in five people had abnormal spirometry that would be consistent with COPD who were not diagnosed. And many of those people had symptoms, so would benefit from treatment. We had many people who we assessed for cardiovascular risk, and they weren't on primary prevention as they should have been. So we viewed this as quite a successful approach because we were picking up all these different important health-related things that we could do things about. They weren't just labels. They were actually things where patient health could be improved. So through all that, we were very positively surprised by what we found. And it sounds like 
just with that high prevalence of cancer that you found that you did manage to reach your harder to reach communities with the demand being high did you find that we talked about how in clinical trials it's usually healthy volunteers maybe in a sort of different social demographic did you find that the people who were attending were people from sort of more deprived areas yeah, so in, in, in England, you've got the index of multiple deprivation, which ranks each person's postcode comes with a with a rank from one to 32,000, I think, I think it is. And so looking at the attendees of the service, the, the majority of people were in the lowest deprivation decile. And so over 50% were in the lowest deprivation decile, which is far, far different from what you would normally see in a research study. It's massively different. So yes, I think this approach, I don't think we should say it's perfect. I think we have to avoid that. But I think it did work in terms of making sure that it was accessible to those people in the most deprived areas. But yes, it's not perfect. And we're still working on different ways and things of trying to improve it. But yes, it's been a very good start. And I guess you talked about how, you know, you found a bit of undiagnosed CPD, people at risk of cardiovascular disease, and also lung cancer. What did you sort of do with the information that you found did you have in place links with secondary care that you pass that information on to or relay it back to GPs you know who followed up those patients to get to the final diagnosis or to sort of start them on treatment yeah so we evolved a little bit from our pilot to what we do now we've scaled things up so we, we're doing more screening now than we that we were and the approach we have now is, in essence, the screening service is run by respiratory physicians. So we obviously don't report the imaging. The imaging is reported by thoracic radiology, and they do a fantastic job. But once that report is created and it comes into the screening team, so there's a screening team sat in secondary care in a hospital where we see the results of the lung health check, so spirometry, symptoms, etc. And then we see the scan report, and the report can be completely fine, or it can have all sorts of of bits and pieces on it. And part of the assessment then is what's of clinical importance and what something found on a CT scan that is not clinically important. And therefore, we shouldn't really be passing that information on because it doesn't have any clinical impact. So there is a process through which that goes. And, and we try as much as possible to manage findings ourselves. So if, for instance, if we find a thoracic aneurysm or abdominal aortic aneurysm, we would make that referral. So we've had discussions with primary care and, and their directive to us has been if at all possible, if, if we can manage those important incidental findings, it would be better rather than passing that information down to primary care because they're just so busy. So that's what we've tried to develop is as much as possible, manage the findings. Obviously, core business is lung nodules and cancers, but as you know, chest physicians, we're managing the respiratory findings, but also triaging the other incidental findings because it's a thoracic CT scan after all, and it does go down to the upper abdomen. So you do find important other pathologies that need managing. And you spoke a little bit about how that sort of evolved from your pilot initially. Is there anything else that you've now started doing differently than what you initially did on the pilot due to sort of difficulties that arose? Well, I think the main issue when you're doing something at scale is it's the information flows, the IT behind because if you think of the complexity of many thousands of invites, many thousands of appointments, lung health checks in the thousands, scans in the thousands, and you're not just doing one screening round, you're then doing surveillance scans on people with pulmonary nodules, and then you're doing another screening round and another screening round. So the complexity of that is significant. And colleagues have been working to try and come up with a sort of an IT solution to help that process. And we have made progress. It's not perfect yet, but that has been a major challenge. The other 
probably most important challenge is simply the capacity for our thoracic radiologists to report because there's simply not enough of them. And this isn't just about lung cancer screening. It's generally in the NHS that we are, as a service, we don't have enough radiologists. We don't have enough capacity. So if you then turn around to your local radiologists and say, well, actually, we're planning to scan thousands of people with a thoracic CT scan. What do you think? It's incredibly challenging because, you know, it's a struggle just at the moment, never mind adding on additional work from screen. So we've had to do things like outsourcing. And then if you outsource, how do you maintain the quality of screening, you know, the reports you get, et cetera, et cetera. So there are major challenges. And these challenges, as you do more screening, other things start to become important. So at the moment, if you have, say, advanced lung cancer, your management may simply be a biopsy, maybe some molecular pathology to see whether targeted agents, immunotherapy, et cetera, are appropriate. But you're talking about relatively straightforward intervention there from a diagnostic point of view. But with a early stage lung cancer, then that's more complex. You're looking at now physiological assessment, so pulmonary function tests, echocardiograms, cardiopulmonary exercise testing. But also with a smaller lesion in the lungs, do you need navigational bronchoscopy? Do you need CT guided biopsy? You also need a PET scan as well. So from a diagnostic pathway point of view, there are, as the numbers go up, this very significantly changes lung cancer as a diagnostic challenge. And then obviously, once you've done the diagnosis, you then move into treatment and treatment of advanced lung cancer is mainly through palliative systemic treatments. With early stage disease, you're looking at surgery and therefore theatre time, supported through high dependency units or ITUs or radiotherapy. So, and therefore all of these things, it has an impact because you're completely changing this. You're not completely changing it, but the people who go through screening generally are now coming with early stage disease. So it's providing challenges all the way along. These challenges, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're difficult, but they, they can be overcome. It just takes time and planning. Definitely. And talking about upscaling, another topic we we're going to sort of touch on was now the national screening health checks that have come into place. And clearly you've played a sort of pivotal role in that with your pilot scheme in Manchester. How do you sort of go from your pilot scheme to sort of more of a national screening health check? And how much were you sort of involved with that? Yeah, so screening is now being considered. So there's a committee called the National Screening Committee who are assessing the health economics of lung cancer screening to, I think, fairly shortly whether they would be supportive of a national programme. And obviously, I'm, I suppose I'm biased, but I hope that they are supportive. That process, I suppose our pilot was in 2016, uh, 17. We presented our data and NHS England were really excited about it because I think it showed a couple of things. A, it transforms the outcome from lung cancer itself, but B, we had a model of service delivery that actually looked as though it was breaking down barriers and working in areas of more socioeconomic deprivation. And it wasn't just Manchester, other centres as well. And this led to the inclusion of the lung health check in the NHS long-term plan. And then from that, there has been funding by NHS England for a larger pilot scheme across England. Uh, initially at about 10 sites, it's now expanded to over 20 sites and further expansion, I think, is planned as well. Going therefore from local, where we've sat down locally and planned and designed services to trying to sort of align things at a larger scale at a national level meant that we now have a national committee. So there's a screening 
committee. There's a national protocol, quality assurance. There's a, a lot of infrastructure, I suppose, going behind all of this, as well as funding, to try and make sure that delivery of lung health checks is similar across the country. It doesn't have to be exactly the same type of design or approach, but that it's similar for people taking part in terms of what they're offered and, and the standard of reporting, etc. So yeah, so it's been a process over a number of years taking it from these pilots, demonstrating that it works, and then moving it to a bigger scale. We, so we don't have a national lung cancer screening programme as of yet, but as I say, if the National Screening Committee is supportive, then our hope is that that would then move lung cancer screening onto the same approach as, as is done for breast and bowel cancer, for instance. So at the moment, just to clarify for our listeners, it's mainly just sort of 23 areas in England, I believe, that sort of do lung health checks. And like you say, they might not be entirely identical to what you did in Manchester. But I think the main focus is sort of to invite them for low dose CT scans. And it's mainly, to my understanding, for patients who have ever smoked and between the age of 55 or 75. Is that right, Dr. Crosby? Yes. So a lung health check, you can have a lung health check if you've ever smoked smoked and you're between the age of 55 and 74 inclusive for the national program. So a lung health check doesn't mean necessarily that you then have screening. So you then, as part of your lung health check, you then get assessed, your lung cancer risk is assessed. And if you are over the threshold, so the, the, there's, as I say, two risk models, one's called PLCO and one is called LLP. And if you are above a certain risk threshold, so these calculators estimate your risk of developing lung cancer over either the next five or six years. And if it's over a certain percentage point, then you qualify for screening and are offered a, a CT scan. And obviously, I think it would be great if we could get sort of national lung cancer screening. And hopefully, fingers crossed, we are heading in that direction. But we've touched on how there are other screening programs. Why do you think lung cancer has sort of lagged so far behind other cancers in implementing screening? Do you think it was due to sort of a lack of evidence out there? Or do you think it was due to lack of funding? Why has there been a sort of delay in us setting up a screening service that's clearly needed. Yeah, I think the key sort of foundation stone to all of this was showing that mortality benefit with screening. So lung cancer specific mortality reduction with screening. That was the key. So that was in 2011. Once we had that, then there was arguments whether one study was enough and whether one study in America was enough, whether you needed another one in Europe. And therefore there was delays essentially waiting for a European study called Nelson then to publish, which it did a couple of years ago. There was, I suppose, a lack of evidence base until relatively recently. However, I think having been interested in lung cancer and research over the past few years, there has been a transformational difference in the amount of funding coming into lung cancer research. I suppose there's been money coming into cancer treatment, so oncological treatments, say chemotherapies, etc., for a while, but actually very little or virtually none into early detection. And actually early detection is the only way in which we're able to reduce mortality. And there was a, almost a complete lack of investment in lung cancer early detection. And the reasons for that may be complex, but I, th I certainly think there will be an element of people in more deprived areas maybe have less of a voice. And the other is that, and I've had this actually when I've presented about lung cancer to non-lung cancer people or non-respiratory people, I often get 
well, why don't we just stop smoking? And that, I think, it can pervade funders or where decisions are made regarding funding. And I think that probably that has impeded us over the years, but it very much feels as though that has changed now, though. The level of funding has gone up significantly, which is fantastic. And that means that we are now able to try and sort of accelerate these interventions because it is a horrendous disease. It has a massive impact and this intervention can save lives. So it's good that we're able to do it. I agree, though, it would have been good if we could have done it sooner, but we are where we are. Yeah. I think definitely. And I was just going to sort of touch a little bit on smoking cessation as well, as I know that's something you mentioned as part of the lung health checks, and I think is a really important part of respiratory medicine. But I agree, I don't think it's the only thing that we can do to sort of target lung cancer. Before I do that, I just wondered if you had any final words on your pilot scheme or the national screening health checks at the moment before we sort of talk a little bit more about smoking cessation. My feeling is it will grow, that we'll be doing more of it. I'm hopeful. I don't know, but I'm hopeful that this will be supported nationally. It will bring many challenges, but I think those challenges we need to try and overcome because the intervention itself it is a view. If you had a drug that did this, it would be all over the news, it would be everywhere. And I think we need to view this intervention you know, along those lines. This is something that can save lives. Yes, of course, it's balanced that screening can also do harm. So we have to be careful. It has to be done with a high quality, high quality assurance, et cetera. But the intervention works. And I think we'll be doing more of it in the future. And hope, as I say, hopefully it's a national scale. Yeah, hopefully trainees will see, and I have already seen patients coming through that route as well into clinic hopefully we'll be seeing a bit more of that as well as a different route of referral and not just lung cancer i mean we interstitial lung disease and various other things picking up vascular aneurysm so i think this will have an impact and be seen more broadly it won't simply be lung cancers detected as well yeah no that's definitely a good point so sort of touching a little bit on smoking cessation i think this is probably something that i see that maybe we could do better in the hospital and i think Personally, I feel sometimes there is still sort of a little bit of a stigma attached to smoking, especially if you're someone who's never been around people who've smoked or have any personal experiences of it. What would be sort of your advice to juniors in hospital and smoking cessation? If you look at one of the things when you're going through setting services up, whatever, is looking at cost effectiveness. And almost the most cost-effective thing, the one thing you can do to improve health is stop people smoking. So, you know, of all of the things we do, that's probably the most cost-effective thing to do. We have treatments that are highly effective. I'm not saying that it's straightforward, but they are effective. And services that can support people through that process. And I think it's our duty, really, to support people. It's critical we don't make judgments. But it's also critical that we support people and encourage smoking cessation through smoking cessation services, etc., because it's such an important health intervention. It's possibly the most important thing we can do is stopping somebody smoke or supporting someone to stop smoking. So view it highly, view it as a really important step. And I think patients clearly want to stop, or the majority of people want to stop smoking. It's providing support and encouraging people to do that. My advice would be to view it positively and encourage people to try and do that. And it's a teachable moment, isn't it? When somebody's in a hospital setting, they've come in because they're ill and therefore maybe receptive to advice and on smoking cessation. I would view it as, as a really important part of a, an assessment of a patient yeah I think it definitely is a opportunity that I think a lot of us pass by I remember once going to a talk where they were saying key opportunities to sort of target smoking cessation are when patients have 
come in and been unwell from their chest or, for instance, when they're pregnant or when they're coming in for, say, a CT scan to look for cancer. These are really great opportunities actually to discuss their smoking because they're linked to their presentation a lot of the time. I know we said that most patients are sort of keen to quit. And I think I have found that. And a lot of people are just looking for support or reassurance because it is a difficult process. What would you, though, say to patients who are adamant they don't want to quit? Yeah, I think you have to offer people support, talking it through, seeing if there's any reasons or barriers to quitting, really important not to be judgmental, and really just exploring anything that may be behind that. And of course, it's person's right. If they wish to smoke, that is their choice. And it's really what you're supposed to be doing as a medical professional is just exploring that a bit and just seeing if there is reasons behind that and whether you know we can help. Because as I've said, it, as we all know, it's incredibly important to try and stop in terms of preventing not just a lung cancer issue, this is it, it's all sorts of health problems and the money as well. And when buying cigarettes nowadays, it's very expensive. So I think exploring, being supportive and just being there for patients, you know, and people can change their mind and providing support if they do. And I think one of the sort of newer things that have come in is sort of vaping. What are sort of your thoughts about vaping and the harms of vaping versus smoking and even sort of maybe the link to lung cancer? Or is it just too early really to say? I think it's too early. And I think the issue of vaping is the setting, isn't it? So the area in which I work, I have no doubt that vaping is a effective intervention for smoking cessation. It's something that we offer uh, in our screening service. I'm involved in a research study in Leeds called the YES study, where we're looking at the optimal approach to smoking cessation within lung screening. And uh, again, in, in that study, that vaping is included alongside all other, you know, standard nicotine replacement treatments. So in that setting, I think it's an important part of the sort of the tools that we have to try and help people come off cigarettes. But I agree, you know, longer term data, et cetera, is needed. But I think the area I work, we're convinced that it's a very useful tool. I think we sort of come to the end of our podcast, but Dr. Crosby, I just wanted to sort of touch, you mentioned how you got into sort of academic medicine quite late on. Is there any advice or tips you have out there for our budding sort of respiratory future trainees or any sort of advances you see coming into respiratory medicine that you'd like to share your thoughts about? Yeah, I think it's an incredibly exciting time. You you just see huge advances in treatments. The advance is also looking at the diagnostic tests. There's changes happening very rapidly. And so it is exciting to be involved in that. I don't think we should totally sugarcoat academic. It can be difficult, you know, difficult to attract funding, etc. But it does give you that opportunity to scratch beneath the surface and to try and make change that affects patients more broadly, not just the patients sat in front of you, but patients uh, both, you know, in your own communities and more broadly than that. And I think that's the exciting thing, that you can have a significant impact in what you do and really have a a positive benefit on people on a, a, you know, significant scale. So it's an exciting career. It does have its challenges. But I think, you know, from my perspective, I really, really enjoy it. And I'm very, very pleased I got involved in academics. But as you say, yes, a bit later (laughs) than than maybe normal. I think that's still a positive, isn't there? If you have gone into training and you, you know, it's something 
you've now just developed an interest with with being involved with a bit of research here and there at work I think it's just to be aware that it's still an opportunity that's open to you because other people have done it out there so I think if you are interested I'd personally say go find someone who's you know into research and sort of discuss the future of that yes agreed totally agree so I think I want to firstly just thank you for giving up your time really appreciate that and sort of updating us on sort of how we've got to where we are right now with lung health checks nationally and I just wanted to sort of give some key home messages to our listeners out there so really what we've discussed is how we've now got sort of a national lung health check for patients whoever smoked who are over 55 but younger than 75 and you might end up seeing these patients in clinic who have undergone CT scans that have identified any abnormalities really really important to make sure that you are addressing smoking cessation in all our patients who smoke it's really cost effective and has a huge impact not just from a respiratory perspective but to other parts of their health And I think another thing to just consider as a trainee that we've seen in sort of the pilot lung health checks was that there is a lot of undiagnosed COPD also out there and to not miss the opportunity to refer these patients either onto our respiratory colleagues or for spirometry, because that's another way that we could also improve the quality of life of our patients. So just again, thank you so much, Dr. Crosby. Really do appreciate your knowledge and your time, really. No problem at all. Really enjoyed it. If you've enjoyed listening to our podcast today on lung health checks, then you might be interested in our upcoming Royal College Physicians of Edinburgh event on non-invasive ventilation and obstructive sleep apnea in September. This course will focus on hot topics within the field of NIV and OSA. For further information, please visit the RCPE website.